Not every guest I have on this show has written a best-selling book. But of course, with this author's in August latest installment, this week's guest has. But even of those who have, who may have featured business or investing advice for the 2020s, few, if any, generated their bestsellers through featuring character-driven historical narratives from the 19th century. Well, this week's guest has. Candace Millard's most recent book is River of the Gods, about the search for the source of the Nile. Beautifully written and paced, it once again tells a story you may think you know, at least something about, but it opens your eyes to see things you knew nothing about, but that thanks to this author that you learn, that you learn, remember, probably share with others. With advice as well for new writers and other benefits aplenty, pull up a chair and join us only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I like books. I hope you do too. I know many of you do, which is why I hope you sign into this investing podcast one month a year to meet authors, authors of books that that may, as this week's podcast demonstrates, may have little focus on business or investing, but some great focus and lessons on another field that we do play on on this podcast, and that is the field of life. Well, two weeks ago, it was Game Design with Jesse Shell. Last week, it was Rethinking What We Really Mean by Leadership with Les McEwen. And this week, it's a return visit of one of my favorite living authors, Candace Millard. Candace Millard is the best-selling author of four wonderful books, all of which I've read, including, of course, her most recent and the subject of this author's in August interview, River of the Gods, about the race to locate the source of the Nile. Her previous book, Hero of the Empire, tells the story of a young Winston Churchill's gutsy escape from South Africa as a young man embroiled in the Boer War. Candace and I talked about that book when she visited Full HQ, oh my gosh, September of 2016. <laughs> you can listen to that by Googling Foolish Heroes and Candace Millard. That podcast appeared on September 28, 2016. Well worth a re-listen. Her other two amazing books, they are both amazing, are The River of Doubt and still my personal favorite, Destiny of the Republic. I will leave you to explore those on your own, dear listener. In the meantime, we have Candace back with us. And so let me start by asking Candace, how's life treated you since September 2016? <laughs> Hi, David. Thanks so much for having me back on your show. Everything's been great. I know I was just joking about how slow I am in uh, writing books. It takes a long time. So unfortunately, it's a, there's a long time in between when I see you, but, um, but it's great to be back. Thank you. And of course, somewhere near the end of this interview, I'll probably ask you what's the next project if you're even talking about that. But you are so painstaking, so careful, so research-oriented, of course, your background as a journalist playing into this, that it does take some time to write these wonderful books, maybe every five years or so. That's the rhythm I've gotten used to. Let me ask you, Candace, at the start here, when did the idea that you would actually write this book, River of the Gods, first come to you? Uh, it was about 20 years ago, actually. I was working at National Geographic magazine, and I heard the story of these two men, Richard Burton and John Hanning, speak, and I was really struck by how incredibly different they were, first of all, the story of their friendship and the betrayal of that friendship, all in the search for the source of the Nile, which was the greatest mystery of exploration at that time. Um, and so it just stayed with me all these years. And um, after I finished my book about Churchill, I, uh, I was thinking about, I wanted to write about Marie Curie, actually, who has just an astonishing personal story. Um, but the problem with that for me is that all the action took place in her mind. And it's really hard to do with the kind of narrative nonfiction I write. And, um, and so I was having lunch with um, my husband and um, I said something about Burton and Speak. And he said, you know, you have literally been talking about that for 20 <laughs> years. So maybe it's time. <laughs> So that's how it happened. <laughs> you know, I think most of us, when we think about the source of the Nile, at least for me, the phrase that immediately came to mind was Dr. Livingston, mm -hmm. I presume. Uh, that's the story I think a lot of us um, heard at some point. And uh, you and I have agreed ahead of time 
and this is really my call most of all, but you approved of it, to yes. not spoil this story. So we're going to be doing kind of a spoiler-free interview. I want to tantalizingly dangle this book <laughs> and some of its amazing conclusions a couple of times during the interview. But the story is most of all, Candace, I think it's it's fair to say Richard Francis Burton's, and we're going to get to him in a moment. But first, I don't know, arguably the most important character in River of the Gods is not a human character at all. Arguably the most important character is the source of the Nile right. River, pivotal. So the whole tale that you spin kind of revolves around that character. Candace, why was the source of the Nile so important to locate? Well, you use the word tantalizing, and I think that's a per the perfect word when you think about the source of the Nile. So the search for it had been going on for thousands of years. So, you know, ancient historians, Egyptian kings, Greek philosophers, they had all wondered what is the source of the Nile? Because obviously this is the longest and most storied river in the world, and it brings to life one of the richest and oldest civilizations on earth, Egypt. And so um, there was always this question and it was so frustrating because obviously what they thought the natural approach would be would be to start at the Mediterranean Sea and ascend it, try to reach the source just by following the river. Um, the problem is you very quickly come upon something called the Sud, S-U-D-D, which is a giant swamp and nobody but nobody could get past it. And so, um, and so then, you know, you fast forward to the 1800s and then this, this race to map the world, right? And everyone is, you know, going to Africa, they're going to Australia, they're going everywhere. And again, still, the holy grail of exploration was the source of the Nile. So obviously, that's where the Royal Geographical Society, this, this old and revered institution in England, wanted to send its men. Which still exists today, by the way, which I didn't really know. And yes, as I read the yes. book, I was thinking the Royal Geographical Society, which kind of funded it and is is certainly a central character as well, if you think mm -hmm. outside of humanity and think of characters in this book. But I was like, mm -hmm. are they still going today? And I'm assuming <laughs> as part of your research, yes. which is always extensive and involved, I know a lot of travel for this book. Did you hang out some? And what's happening at the Royal Geographical Society in 2022? I did. I, I hung out there a lot. They have incredible, incredible archives, and they've just been an amazing um, protector of those archives over the years. And they still fund expeditions. They fund a lot of science. They're always having meetings. They're always trying to get young people involved. So they're they're very, very active and Wonderful. very cool. Um, and also, I want to give them credit. You know, I always talk about the fact, and it was important to me in this book, um, to talk about the fact that Africans themselves played a huge role, an essential role in mapping their own continent. And obviously one of the main characters of my book, Sidney Mubarak Bombay, their guide throughout history and involved with finding David Livingston and all of that, um, he was, I, I think, without question, the most accomplished guide in the history of Af African exploration. And, and in the day, in the 1800s, the Royal Geographical Society and their sort of you know, gentlemen scientists and armchair geographers didn't acknowledge that, but they are trying to make amends for that today. And so they have had exhibitions about guides and, and, um, and you know, uh, accompanying books and things like that. So, um, so they're very active and, yeah, really fascinating institution. That's wonderful to hear. And we're certainly going to get back to Bombay in just a little while. Candace, when did you decide basically to ignore the Dr. Livingston, I presume, angle that many of us would have expected in favor of the story that you told here? Well, you know, I, people have told the story of all the different people in the Victorian age who tried to solve this mystery. But as I said, I was particularly interested in this um, and these two men, Burton and Speak, and their relationship and how it goes really, really wrong. And, you know, I, I, the, this book is about exploration, but really it's about human nature. When, you know, everything else changes, but human nature really does not, right? And so you, you see it in full force in this story. You see courage, you see cowardice, you see friendship and betrayal and envy, deep, deep <laughs> simmering hatred, you know, that erupts and destroys both of these men. So to me, that was really the fascinating story. Mm. 
Now, for many of us who may know a British actor, I think it's actually, he was Welsh, of the 20th century name Richard Burton, (laughs) way better than the 19th century explorer and linguist. Would you take a brush to canvas here, paint a picture again of Richard Francis Burton? So Burton was one of these just once in a century characters. He was really, really fascinating, incredibly brilliant. He wrote dozens of books, essays, translations, um, travel journals. Um, he, uh, he was fascinated with different cultures. He was one of the early anthropologists. Um, he was fascinated with sex and, and hallucinogens and trying everything, which was very alarming to Victorian Britons. And he was an incredible linguist. He spoke more than 25 different languages. He was also um, an incredibly accomplished explorer even before he set out to find the source of the Nile. He was the first Englishman to enter Mecca disguised as a Muslim because his Arabic was so incredible. Um, so he, and he was, he was an equal opportunity offender. You know, he studied every religion and respected none. Um, so whatever he was able to accomplish, he was always considered an outsider in England. He was always looked at with sort of suspicion and distrust because he, um, he, you know, he'd been born in England, two British parents, but he had been raised in Europe. So he moved 18 times before his 13th birthday. And, and each country he moved to, he would sort of effortlessly pick up the language and pick up the, the culture. Um, and so he, he was always seemed like an outsider. And he also you know, to Britons didn't look particularly British. You know, he had this black, black hair and these these mesmerizing sort of incredibly dark eyes that he um, said he would use to hypnotize, especially women, <laughs> to get them to do his bidding. And um, even Bram Stoker, who would go on to write Dracula after he met Burton, was obsessed with Burton. And interestingly, you know, he, he talks about it. He's, he's like, he's steel. He would go through you like a sword. Um, but he in particular talks about Burton's teeth. <laughs> and he says, he watches him talk and his canine shows like the gleam of a dagger. So they think that he probably inspired um, Dracula. Mm. You know, it's incredible. And I have to admit, I, I, did, I did go back and check this. I didn't realize Bram Stoker, first of all, was Irish. I had no yes. idea an Irishman yes. had written yes. the 1897 Gothic novel Dracula. I was just picturing, you know, surely the author of Dracula would himself sound and look like Dracula, but it was actually Richard Francis Burton we who see. maybe kind so, of sounded and looked like Dracula. <laughs> who inspired that. Yeah. Another interesting thing about Bram Stoker, his wife, when he met her, was dating Oscar Wilde. Yes. <laughs> okay. Isn't that great? I know you're like, mm, okay. <laughs> but he was, she was, she was famously a famous Irish beauty. <laughs> mm. So Richard Francis Burton, uh, a central character, of course. And I love how you started the story by describing his stealing his way into Mecca. That itself could be a, I don't know if you've sold the movie rights just to that chapter, Candace, but I feel like that, that was a, that was a great story to lead lead off with. A little ways in, we're going to meet another character. I would like you to describe him now. It's not John Hanning speak with whom Burton had the big rivalry. We'll get to him in a sec, but you mentioned him already. Sidi Mubarak Bombay, the African guide. Who was Bombay? So Bombay was um, kidnapped from his village when he was just a child, uh, his village in East Africa. And he, you know, lost everything that day. He lost his family. He lost his name. He lost his home. He was dragged hundreds of miles to the East African coast, taken to Zanzibar, where he was sold for cloth. And then he was taken to Western India, um, where he was enslaved for 20 years. And when the man who owned him died, um, Bombay was able to make his way back to East Africa, and that's where he met Burton and Speak. And it was fascinating to me, and that's really when I knew for sure I wanted to tell the story because I didn't mm. really want to. I didn't want to tell a story of okay, here come some Europeans going into Africa and quote unquote discovering something where you know millions of people had lived for hundreds of thousands of years. Right. Um, but when I when I was reading, just doing research, and I I read about Bombay. I was just fascinated by him for many reasons. And one is that if you read Burton and Speak's, um, Burton and Speak's stories about their expeditions, 
it's fascinating what they say about Bombay, because here's a man who, again, lost everything, was enslaved for 20 years, and he comes out of that incredible tragedy, not with bitterness, but with kindness. He was unbelievably kind, unbelievably generous and cheerful and hardworking. He really was the, the linchpin for this expedition, and he quickly became the, the hero, in my mind at least, of, of this expedition. And both men came to rely on him very, very deeply, and, um, and not just them. And so, so Bombay, he helped uh, Burton and Speak reach the Tanganyika. They became the first Europeans to reach Lake Tanganyika, which is this huge lake in western um, Tanzania, which Burton hoped was the source of the Nile. And then he takes Speak in this horrible twist, um, cruel to Burton, to the Nyanza, which is the source of the Nile, um, which Speak named Lake Victoria. Um, and then Speak comes back with James Grant, again, using Bombay. And then Henry Morton Stanley comes and Bombay takes him to Lake Tanganyika, where he finds mm. David Livingston, Dr. Livingston, I presume. That was Bombay. And then... With Verney Lovett Cameron, Bombay becomes the first to cross the entire continent from east to west, sea to sea. And, and very, very few people know his name. I, I worked at National Geographic for six years. I was steeped in stories about Africa, about exp exploration, and I had never heard his name. And it's just wonderful then that you have written a book which puts history in a better place, uh, with a new story. And actually, I would say each of your books, part of the reason I love your work, Candace, is that you're telling a new story each time. You may have thought you knew the source of the Nile. Well, I sure didn't. And, and yet you learn, and even the Royal Geographical Society these days, backpedaling a little bit, um, honorably recognizing mm -hmm. that there is a story that was true that wasn't told. And so right. I think that's part, no spoilers, no full spoilers <laughs> in this interview, that, but that's part of what's amazing about this book, River of the Gods. I, you know, I see your work, Candace, is most of all, of course, historical in nature, rooted in history, based on fact, researched letter by letter. And here I mean the ones that come in envelopes, which yeah. you cover so <laughs> extensively. So, so history first and foremost, but I would also say history as character-driven narratives. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're not analyzing the four causes of the Boer War or the conditions in America that gave rise to industrialization, per se. We're getting to know the people mm -hmm. of the time. And so I was reading your book aloud in full to my wife, Margaret, once again. So cool. And she turned to me at one point and she wondered the following. How early do you, Candace, find yourself developing feelings for mm -hmm. these humans, the heroes, and the villains, and maybe even more, do you find you have to watch out for developing biases or your own blind spots regarding some of these people? Do you ever have to check your own emotions at the door as you tell their stories? That's an excellent question. Yeah, it is difficult. I mean, you you come into it knowing just kind of the basics. You know, before I commit to uh, writing a book, I have to know that I have just a huge, you know, mind-bendingly huge amount of uh, primary source material to work mm. with. Um, and obviously, and, and that it's a good story and, a, you know, good tangential characters and things like that. But you never know what you're going to find. And that was definitely the case here. You know, I had always been fascinated with Richard Burton in particular um, for ob obvious reasons. You know, he was an incredibly brilliant, strange, fascinating guy. Um, but he was so prolific. He had written so much that when I started, I hadn't read a lot of what he had written. And, um, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I'm deep into it. And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, like I said, he was an early anthropologist. And some of it is really ugly, right? really ugly. And he gets to a point, um, again, no spoilers, but he's angry and he's embittered and he's been sort of tossed out. And um, all of that comes out in his writing and his, his sort of cultural studies. And, um, and that's difficult, you know, and you've got to be honest about it. Um, but, and the same is true for Speak. So there's a lot of difficulty. Um, and Bombay, I just found absolutely irresistible. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's just like nothing not to like about the guy. So, yeah, it is always an issue. You know, you mentioned my book about Garfield. Um, when I started that, I didn't know much about Garfield. I, I knew enough to know that he was brilliant and just an incredibly decent human being and would have, I think, been one of our great presidents. But um, 
I went uh, to the Walter Reed Museum, the Museum of Health and Medicine, and I saw uh, his spine. They have a section of his spine there that they used wow. during the trial of his assassin to show where they have this red plastic pin to show where the bullet went through. And I remember seeing that early on in my research and thinking, oh, wow, what a fascinating, you know, artifact from our country's history. And then years later, I finished the book and honestly have really come to care about him and just deeply, deeply admired him. And um, All Things Considered has asked me to do an interview and they want to go there, even though it's radio, they want to go and and have them bring in that section of spine again and have me talk about it. Wow! And um, they opened the door to bring in the spine, and I was like, "Oh no, I'm going to start crying," because it was different now. You know, it was like this was, uh, you know, just a, a a good person. He was 49 years old. He had a family that loved him. He had a country that had so much hope um, placed in him, and it was just an unbelievable tragedy. Um, so yeah, your wife is right. It's, it's hard, um, but it's important. And, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I, I have all of my notes. I don't just say, oh, I basically use this and this and this chapter. You know, you can look and see. Um, I try to quote extensively and I, I try my hardest to just lay it out there for you. This is what he said. This is what he did. You decide, you make the decision. But of course I'm human and um, I'm, a, I'm affected by it along the way. Hmm. Well, the rivalry and and partnership, uh, actually coopetition, to use a portmanteau <laughs> word familiar to many of my investor and business listeners, between Burton and now let's talk about John Hanning Speak. I would say that's the central thread of the book. It's a story most of us will be completely unfamiliar with. At what point, Candace, did you realize you had some storytelling gold here, and how did you put the story together. So let me, yeah, let me tell you about John Hanning's speak. So he was Burton's complete opposite in nearly every way. So he was <laughs> what Britons expected their heroes to be, right? So he was blonde and blue-eyed. He had born in, been born into the aristocracy. Um, he was uh, an officer in the British Army. He loved to hunt. That was so. So while Burton was spending all of his time reading. Um, growing up and learning languages, um, Speak was hunting, and his big goal was to open a natural history museum in his ancestral home. Um, and so he meets um, he meets Burton and Aiden um, when Burton is his first expedition to find the source of the Nile, and um, and he wants to go into Somaliland to hunt, but um, the British officials and Aiden won't let him do it; it's too dangerous. And so he asks. Um, Burton, if he can go along. And Burton had just found out one of the members of his expedition had died suddenly. And so he does have an opening, um, but he he has real reservations right away about Speak. First of all, he doesn't have any skills that Burton really needs. He already has most of them. Um, and he is is um, he's concerned that Speak doesn't seem to have any interest in the people through whose land they're going. He doesn't speak any of the languages. He doesn't yep. have any knowledge or interest in the people or the, the land through which they're traveling. But Burton says, I saw that he was going to lose his money and his life. And so I felt sorry for him. I took pity on him. And he says later, bitterly, why should I have cared? I do not know. Yeah. And let's go right to the book because that's a key moment. Page 40, I'm going to quote, by taking Speak onto his expedition, he was, Burton wrote, quote, assuming the fullest responsibility and giving a written bond for our blood, end quote. You go on years later filled with bitter regret. Burton would wonder what had moved him that day to make such a hasty decision. He'd brought onto his long-planned and hard-won expedition a man who seemed to have little to contribute and whom he knew very little about. That's right. That's right. And that expedition would end before it even began because they made it to Somaliland, um, but then they were attacked in the middle of the night. One member of the expedition was killed. Speak was kidnapped and stabbed 11 times. It's just incredible that he survived oh. it. And Burton had a javelin thrust through his jaw sticking out from cheek to cheek, side to side, um, and left him with this you know, great scar down the side of his face that made him seem even more suspicious and sinister. 
you know, hearing um, the physical hardship um, being stabbed 11 times, I can't not think of another well-known writer of our time who was stabbed 10 times just a couple of weeks ago. Any quick thought that you'd like to put in about Salman Rushdie? Yeah, it's it was shocking and um, just devastating. And uh, he's obviously been a hero to so many writers, so many people, but also so many writers just, um, you know, incredibly brave and strong and um, just such an inspiration. So um, definitely our thoughts are with him. And I'm so, so sorry to hear what happened. I will say, having been to Chautauqua, New York myself in the summer and seeing the wonderful lectures open-mindedness open to all. I thought, for those who haven't gotten a chance to see it, the five-minute YouTube video of the president of Chautauqua later that same day speaking about the significance of that is well worth Mm. anybody's watch. Anyway, uh, stabbing occurs because humans make a decision tragically, and that was a brutal thing for John Hanning Speak to survive. But, you know, another thing that these gentlemen, and they're heroic, to most of us, I think, along this dynamic, they were surviving disease constantly. <laughs> I mean, I, I've traveled to Africa. I've traveled some of the world. Occasionally, I'll get sick or I'll be upset that maybe I got COVID. What was happening to these gentlemen as they were traveling through Africa? So I think people, first of all, have to understand the distances that they were traveling. So they're they're going more than a thousand miles into the African interior. They're spending years there, and um, yes, and facing horrible, horrible diseases. So um, Burton had such severe malaria that he was paralyzed, could not walk for nearly a year, couldn't even use his hands with which to write. He couldn't couldn't hold a pen. Both men. Um, were blinded at different times, you know, had horrible eye infections. Um, But poor Speak, he always had sort of the strangest things that happened to him. (laughs) One night in particular, he's, uh, he's in his tent, there's a big storm, it knocks down his tent. And so he lights a candle to um, erect his tent. And it, it attracts this horde of beetles. So his tent is... filled with hundreds of beetles and he's flailing away desperately trying to get rid of them. But then he finally just gives up out of exhaustion and he lies down and then soon he feels a beetle crawling into his ear and burrowing deeper and deeper into his ear. And out of desperation, he just tries everything. He has tries butter and oil and salt, <laughs> whatever he can think of to try to get rid of it. And finally, out of desperation, he takes his pen knife and he Ugh. jabs it into his ear and he, he does kill the beetle, but he deafens himself in that ear for the rest of his life. And over the next few weeks, you know, bits of the beetle come out and his earwax, you know, there's a, a leg or a wing Ugh. or whatever. So just, yeah, absolutely brutal, brutal diseases and, and accidents and attacks. We certainly could just continue telling the story of of the book, which you do so beautifully within the book. But if we did that, A, this interview would go way too long, <laughs> and B, we would start spoiling a remarkable story. So I think I want to start dialing out a little bit, Candace. And one thing I was I was very conscious of, and you do this in all your books, and I uh, you've already spoken to it in this interview once, but universal themes. Uh, themes that connect us to the 19th century, really any century, themes of human character, exploration mm-hmm. and adventure, encountering the other, I might say, ego, love, requited right. or on. But also, since you've now written each of your books, at least partly set in the 19th century, themes that do not connect with us at all in the mm-hmm. 21st century. So without much science back then and with some crazy notions that were almost embraced as universal human knowledge at the time, at least in the West, not universal. Um, (laughs) Inherited traditions that we find anywhere from bizarre today to downright offensive or even evil, thinking here, of course, of slavery, uh, which was a norm, or polygenism, the -hmm. idea that humans don't all come from the same DNA, but there are different races that are not related to others. So, Candace, how difficult is it for you to get into the mindsets of your characters? 
Well, as I said, um, I, it's really, really important to me before I commit to a book that I know that I have a lot of primary source material to work with. And that's what I really rely on. So that gives me dialogue. It gives me, um, you know, those little details that ho hopefully make you feel like you're there. But it also gives me a little bit of insight, a little entry into their minds, you know, to try to understand. And sometimes that's a very uplifting, exciting, thrilling place. And sometimes it's a very dark place. And, um, and I certainly did um, go there with um, Burton and speak um, at the end of his life. Um, Burton is, is so angry and, um, and really struggling. And, um, and so, as you said, so he, he starts something called the Cannibal Club, which is just as horrible as it sounds. Yeah. And, um, and, and it's, uh, there's a lot, a lot of racism involved. Mostly they just want the freedom to talk about pornography and things that are, are illegal um, in England at that time. Um, and then Speak himself, you know, Speak was, so you talked about um, polygenous and monogenous. So monogenous, obviously believe we all come from the same um, origins, which is obviously correct. However, early monogenous, before Charles Darwin, right, before On the Origin of Species, um, it was a religious approach to it and thinking that we're all descendants of Noah. And um, unfortunately, what came out of that was a very twisted pseudoscience. Um, uh, and today we know it as a Hamitic myth. And, um, and Speak was an advocate of that myth. And he, he, he didn't start it. I mean, it had been used for a long time to justify slavery, but he made it even more popular. And what it is, is just says that Ham um, was the weakest of the sons of, of Noah and so these are Africans are the descendants of, of Ham. And so that's why they're sort of doomed to serve the, the, the other branches of the, of the family. Um, and, and so that's, again, that's another thing that I didn't know. I didn't, I'd never even heard of the Hamitic myth until I started researching it. And I certainly didn't know about its connections to John Hanning speak, but you spin that forward and it, and it had a real effect and one of the worst genocides in history, the Rwandan genocide. Mm. And it was incredible, that connection that you made. And it's a real connection. Uh, last year in August, I interviewed Charles King, author of a wonderful book called Gods of the Upper Air, which is basically about the founding, largely in the U.S., really, of anthropology as, as a discipline, which is mm -hmm. only about 100 years old. But the way Charles in his book confronts just the rampant racism Right. that was largely scientifically justified at the time. I think it's hard in a lot of cases for us even to adopt that as a default setting for our minds, or I would say in this case, the minds of the characters we're writing about. So the 19th century, of course, rife with that. Let's go with a whimsical next question, Candace. So, so <laughs> related to this then. Yeah. Let's, so it's, it's so obvious now seeing the biases of people from the past, their foibles, their ignorances, and yet, won't the same thing be true, people, two centuries from now, looking back at our life and time? So, Candace, I, I won't be around to hold you accountable to this <laughs> prediction, but if you had to make an educated guess as to what we today are doing wrong or getting wrong, maybe even with the best of intentions, maybe, maybe we just don't have the science yet, uh -huh. what do you think Millard fans of the 23rd century will oh-so-knowingly have to excuse about our own present day foibles? Oh yeah, very hard to say. I mean, obviously I think it's clear to all of us, we still have a long, long way to go when it comes to racism, it comes to respecting each other, respecting certainly mm. other races, but just respecting differences and, and, and not just respecting them, but, but uh, you know, really truly appreciating them. Um, and so I'm sure that there are all kinds of missteps that we've made along the way, like as for instance, you know, when I worked at National Geographic, and really even just uh, from a few years ago, uh, we would always talk about slaves, and instead of talking about enslaved persons, mm. right, enslaved people, it's not the slave, <laughs> the people who have been enslaved, it's not, you know, it's the people who are doing the enslaving, not the ones that have been enslaved. So just, just the um, language, you know, obviously, language is always, always changing. And no one understood that better than Richard Burton. But, um, but, you know, we just keeping our minds open and understanding the thing that I think is, is interesting to me today is we've come so far. Um, but I, what I hope is that 
there's not always shame um, because sometimes sometimes people intentionally hurt, right, or intentionally want to um, put themselves above others. Um, but sometimes it's accidental. Sometimes it's just out of ignorance. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that um, if if they're shamed by mistakes that they've made, they're less likely to be open and to listen and to learn and to get better, to improve. Um, so um, that's what I hope. I hope that um, people will say, oh, you know, how embarrassing for them or, you know, that was painful to read this, but they didn't know and they were trying. What matters is that they were trying to get it right. They were trying to understand. Very well said. Thank you for that. All right. Let's stick in, in the meta question atmosphere. Um, I won't ask you to make any daring two century forward predictions anymore, <laughs> but uh, how does Candace Millard write a Candace Millard book? <laughs> Uh, you know, it's interesting when I was writing about Winston Churchill um, and I was I was talking with I had a I had a publisher in London and he said, do you think that you write like an American woman? And I thought, I, I guess I am an American woman, I guess. But I think I, I think I write like myself, you know, and I think that um, and, and I think that's true of, of any field. Um any art or any anything you want to go into. And it takes a while, right? It takes a while to figure out what is my voice? What do I want? And of course, we're all inspired by our heroes. You know, certainly Barbara, for me, Barbara Tuckman, David McCullough, Doris Prince Good, all those people are, I love reading them and I'm inspired by them. But um, I hope that I have my own voice. Um, and, and that's just a matter of doing what comes naturally to me or writing a story that I would want to read. I'm, I, I, my kids always make fun of me because I literally have zero hobbies. <laughs> I'm terrible at crafts. I have no hobbies except I just read. So that's like if I have a free minute, I'm reading because I, I love it. And, um, and so I have an idea. The kind of books I like to read are the books where you just totally forget where you are, who you are, what you're doing. And when somebody says, hey, hey, David, you're like, what? And you're kind of ripped out by your collar, right? And that's the kind of books I love to read. You just get lost in them. And so that's the kind of book that I try to write. Um, and it takes a long time. It takes five years. So I spend the first 80% of the time doing research. I, I first I cast a very wide net, just getting all the information that I can, mm -hmm. and um, and then I um, and then then I start organizing it. It's because you can imagine it's a lot of a lot of things to 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 remember. You know, because if you work on something for years, the worst thing is when you finally get to the point where you can write about it, and you know you have this like great bit of information, this great story or a great quote and you can't remember where you saw it, right? That's just the worst feeling. And so I always put in, you know, I, 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 I annotate and highlight and everything, but then I transfer it, I actually type it in, it's very old school, but it sets a story in my mind for me. And then I always put in exactly where I found it. And I always say years later, when I look at it, I say, thank you, past Candace. Thank you for doing that Love it. Uh, for me. So I spend a lot of time also on the structure, at least a year outlining it finding where I have holes in my research and doing more. So it's not, not really to the last year that I start writing. Mm, thank you for that. Well, you mentioned you love to read. I love to read your books. Whose thank books you. do you love to read, Candace? Um, so nonfiction, I'm a huge Eric Larson fan. Um, I love David Gran. Uh, like I said, Barbara Tuckman, David McCullough, uh, Laura Hillenbrand, uh, Stacey Schiff. Um, anyway, there are just so many great nonfiction uh, writers. I, I, I read a ton of, of fiction as well. I'm more brutal when it comes <laughs> to my fiction. <laughs> you know, people will say, oh, you know, if I start a book, I feel like I have to finish it. I don't feel like that at all, <laughs> especially I'm 55 and there's so many good stories out there that I'm not, you know. And, and so with fiction, unless I just like love it and it's really, really beautifully written, I'm going to move on. Um, and you know what? And I also, I've started reading more poetry lately. Um, I had uh, someone in my family, someone uh, I love very much, was very, very sick um, in the fall and winter. And um, and I just needed something, you know. Uh, and I remember, you know, I majored in English and I used to love poetry and I'd just gotten away from it. And um, so I didn't know where to start again. Um, and, I, you know, I, I know a lot of people who love poetry and know a lot about it. But to me, poetry especially is a very personal kind of reading. 
And so I just kind of wanted to find my own way. So you know what I did? I, I got a poem a day <laughs> book and um, I didn't really hold out much hope. I thought it might be kind of cheesy, but the one I got at least for me um, was perfect. It was exactly Superb. what I needed. And they're all, you know, not all of the poems were for me. You know, some of them, like, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> um, and some, but some just kind of hit home. I just saw this Robert Frost quote about the immortal wound that you sometimes get when you read something and you're like, that's changed me and I'm not going to forget it. And, um, and that's happened with me again and again lately with poetry. I'm so grateful for it. Well, you have a gift for recognizing lovely phrases. And I noticed that you will often title entitle your chapters after that lovely phrase that you extracted from this or that person's poem, verse, or uh, writings history. So I really appreciate that. I have to stick just on the advice to new writers line just a, a little bit longer. Earlier, Candace, you mentioned find your voice, and I certainly hear you there. We do have a lot of people listening right now who are writers or aspire to be writers. One or two more short course Candace Millard tips for new writers. Well, the best, and it seems cliche, but it's absolutely true. You just have to believe in yourself, you know, and you think, uh, if not me, who, you know, I, and, and, mm. and I mean, look, I, I grew up in this little blue collar town in Ohio. I didn't know any writers. It didn't even occur to me that I could be a writer. I just knew that I loved to read and I just read and read and read. And so it wasn't until after graduate school, I thought, well, maybe I can write for a magazine or something like that. Um, but I knew that I was fascinated by history and I knew after working at National Geographic, I knew that I was a good researcher. I knew that I could find those stories. And, um, and I also knew that, you know, I, I, it's not, it doesn't just pour out of me. I do, it's not like, you know, Mozart or something where it's like the first draft <laughs> is genius. I, I mean, I, I always think when I'm writing something and I have to go and I haven't had a chance to work, I think, please, God, don't let anybody see this because it is so bad. Um, but but uh, the one thing I do know about my main thing is I work really hard. My second thing is I do know when it's not working, at least for me, at least for me. And somebody else might read it and think, you know, this is trash. Um, but at least I can look at my own writing and say to me, in my opinion, I feel confident in it. It's not working, but I know how to fix it. And I know that if I wrestle with it long enough, I can fix it. Mm. And um, some of that is just experience. I've written four books now. Um, but, but some of that is just knowing I, I, I love it. I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by the subject. I don't know if anybody else is going to be, but I am. And so I don't ever uh, resent the time that I put into it. Beautifully said. Have you ever read Brenda Eulen's book, If You Want to Write? No, but I will now. Would you well, the punchline, it? it's, yes. I mean, it, it, I first heard about it actually through Guy Kawasaki, the entrepreneur and oh, yeah. uh, wonderful. Um, he's he's also a past interviewee on this podcast, but um, it, it's really as much about creativity. And so for the mm -hmm. makers and, and the creatives out there, it's, it's a book. She was teaching creative writing, I believe it was in Minnesota, to kind of adult education a century ago. And wow. the punchline of the whole book, and we will spoil this one, is she basically <laughs> says at the end, if you want to write, then just write. Get right. started. And so yes, I, exactly. Exactly. And just, and yeah, just work hard, show up every day. Just show up every day and write something. And again, it might be terrible, but then just keep working with it. Let's stick on life advice just one more minute or so. Uh, now, having crossed the hallowed age of 55, you called yourself out there and actually, for the record, you did so on Twitter the day of, which, by the way, was June 16th of this year. I'm pretty sure I have that right. Yes, and I, well I edited your Wikipedia entry in advance of this conversation oh, yeah. to put your official Thank birthday. You. It yeah. wasn't there. But since you outed yourself, I figured it was fair game. So, yes. so I sure did know. You're too. welcome. I sure did know you were 55. Um What's, what's a bit of advice you can give the much younger Candace Millard now, thinking back, who's considering, let's say, stepping away from National Geographic to go out on her own? 
Um, well, to what I learned, and, and so yeah, I would tell her it's going to be okay, because I remember the thing I worried about most when I left National Geographic is that I had learned how to research, and I learned how to find the people who had spent years and decades of their lives really studying something. And I knew that if I picked up the phone and called them and said, hey, this is Candace Millard from National Geographic, will you help me? I knew that they would say yes, because it's National Geographic. What I didn't know is that if I picked up the phone and said, hey, this is Candace Millard, that's all I got. Will you please help me? I was really worried that they would say no. But, um, but what was, has been incredible for the last 20 years that every single time they've said yes. And I think that it's because people, A, you know, they're obviously fascinated with their subject and they love to talk about it. But B, they appreciate somebody trying to get it right. Right. Not just not just, you know, we see arrogance again and again and again. And you certainly see it in writing where someone thinks I can just step in. Oh, I get the basic idea, you know, and describe it. No, it's it's always, always more complex and more difficult than you assume it to be. And so you need to be modest and be grateful and to find the people who know and listen to them. And, um, and that's been such a joy for me working with others. And that's why, as you said, my acknowledgement sections are always so huge because I have so many people to thank who have made it possible for me to re- write these books. You and I talked about that before we came on the air. I always do read the acknowledgement sections of most of the books I appreciate. You do a beautiful job. One thing I did pick up, uh, more advice to not just any writer, but all of us, you really do call out that it's been the same team around you for really all four of these books. So the loyalty, the longevity of relationship that you have, the support, the crew that you've so assembled, lucky. it seems like it's pretty consistent from one book to the next. The exact same uh, agent, publicist, and editor, and they're the best, the best. And I'm so grateful. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who would love to have that kind of continuity and just haven't been fortunate. So I've just been so great. And every single time when I've come to them with an idea, they've been ready to go. I mean, you know, my first book is about this adventure and there, you know, this death and Theodore Roosevelt nearly takes his own life. And then I come to him and say, now I'd like to write about James Garfield. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, God bless them. They said, okay, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> All right. Well, we're about to continue to its close my talk with Candace. But before I do, let me mention that next week is your Rule Breaker Investing mailbag. So Through this month, authors in August, I hope I've occasioned some questions or thoughts from you and you have an opportunity to let me know what those are. RBI at fool.com is our email address. You can always tweet us at RBI podcast on Twitter. So whether it's game design, leadership, or your personal search for the source of, I don't know, anything, all are welcome. And I look forward to joining with you for next week's Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag. All right. Three last questions for you, Candice. I'll count them down. So third to last question. So I've now read all your books. I feel both curious to ask and and, and I would say somewhat qualified now to ask, what are you doing in these books across all of them? Why so far these four books? Um, each one has been different, honestly. And I know it seemed like at first, oh, she must want to write about presidents or world leaders. Um, um, but it's really finding a story that I am personally fascinated with. And I know that I'm not going to get bored with it over five years. And people will say, (laughs) oh, I could never write a book or certainly not work on the same thing for five years, but it's really not the same thing. I mean, I'm always, it's always something different and fascinating. And it's like, uh, it really is like a treasure hunt, you know, and then putting it together is like doing a puzzle. So it's just pure joy for me. I really, um, I really love it. So there's really not to me, uh, I don't go into it thinking, oh, I want this kind of story. I might say, oh, I want some science in there. I want, I want a great story that I can really sink my teeth into. Mm, well said. Second to last question, maybe the same question over again. I don't know. I'm trying this one on for size. So speaking now to us, uh-huh. your readers, kind of a meta question here as well. What ultimately do you want us to come away asking of ourselves after reading a Candace Millard book? 
Well, what I've seen again and again in these stories is the danger of arrogance, like we were talking about before, and the fact that ignorance and arrogance always goes hand in hand, and that is always what does the most damage. Um, and I think that's very evident in each of each of these stories. And um, and so that's what uh, to me um, what I always want to remind myself of again, like modesty is everything. Just, just, you know, just be modest, just say, okay, you know what? And be honest. I don't know. Can you help me? Um, and, and, and listen to other people. And so to me, that's what I would, the lesson, if there's any lesson in these books, that's the lesson um, I hope that someone would take from them. I'm so glad you said that. I also think it's true and illustrative of your work. And since you're appearing on a Motley Fool podcast, and my brother Tom and I and our merry band of fools are out there telling the world, we're fools. Um, It's kind of right there in our name (laughs) and our brand that we're totally aligned with that that, that thinking. And thank you. My final question. It's the obvious one. What's your next adventure? So I do have a next one. Um, I'm just, uh, and I've written the proposal and it's been accepted. I'm actually incredibly excited about it, but I haven't had a chance to really get going on it since I've been touring. So I'll just say that the big thing for me, and it's something that I've wanted for a long time, is that the central character is a woman in this case. And it's a, it's a story about a, a group of people, but the, the person at the heart of it is a woman. And I've wanted to write about a woman for many years. Um, the, the problem, I think, is that although women have done extraordinary things throughout history, not many people wrote about it at the time, right? And so what you want in these stories, I'm always looking for a story where it was like, it was a huge deal at the time and it's been forgotten, right? And um, and you need people writing about it, not just the central persons, you know, writing in their diary and writing letters, but other people paying attention and commenting on it and telling stories about it um, to make it really, really rich. And that just doesn't really happen uh, or it hasn't happened much in history with women. Um, but I think I found one and, and I, I know I found one. To me, I'm so excited about it. I really, really love this story. And um, so uh, you have to wish me luck with it. Amelia Earhart? No, I, although, you know, she's not, her, her hometown is not far. I've thought about her before, but then, you know, everyone was like, okay, you're going to solve the mystery, right? Like, I don't think I can do that. Yeah, sorry. And I, I, you already struck down, I think, Marie Curie. Yeah, Marie Curie, I still, you know, it's in my back pocket. I still hope that I can find a way to make it work because I just, uh, she's so fascinating, but no, it's not Marie Curie. (laughs) I collect quotes and I occasionally dedicate a whole podcast just to reading off some of my favorites and nothing in life is to be feared. It's only to be understood. Now is the time to understand more so that we may fear less. I think that is accurately ascribed to Marie Curie. It is true of our time today as it was when she first wrote or said it. Well, I guess we're going to have to wait another few years to hear the subject and then five or six years to talk about your next book. Candace, I, I pre-approve you as a guest on this podcast six years from now, but if you <laughs> and I have you. a chance to hang it. out in the meantime beforehand, or if you want to come back and talk about something on this podcast you have a red carpet anytime. Kenneth Millard, thank you so much for joining us on Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation, David. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.